Hey everybody, welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy, and we have a really interesting, fascinating conversation for you today with Kevin Krim. Kevin is one of my tragedy buddies. He's also a solid business dude, so we're going to get into both aspects of his life shortly. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media. We'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about my pal, Kevin Krim. He is president and CEO at EDO, the TV outcomes company, a leading platform measuring predictive behaviors driven by convergent TV advertising. It's a company he co-founded over eight years ago with actor and filmmaker Edward Norton and Daniel Nadler. Prior to EDO, Kevin was the general manager and senior vice president of CNBC Digital and previously held leadership positions at Bloomberg, Yahoo, and LookSmart when he began his career with McKinsey & Company. He is the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Lulu & Leo Fund and its flagship Choose Creativity Initiative. Kevin, welcome into the back room. Andy, great to be here. So you are one of the few people who I affectionately refer to as my tragedy buddies. I've met a lot of people over the years who have experienced the kind of tragedy that I think my listeners know that I've been through you know, the situations where you've literally been to hell and back and uh, therefore have a a journey that is very different than most people. And just for a little context, back in October of 2012, you had two children who were murdered by their nanny. Awful, awful story, worst thing imaginable. So I'm curious, what was your coping mechanisms back then? What was your process? Did you go to a lot of therapy? Were were family and friends instrumental? Were you surprised at how some people stood up and how some people didn't show up? Yeah. um, It was, uh, it was the worst thing you can imagine. Uh, You know, and it was actually, I think, worse than most people um, would imagine in their mind's eye. And yet uh, the getting through it, uh, it, it was all of those things you mentioned um, and more. And it was, you know, I think it was really revealing about Marina, my wife, Marina and, 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 and my relationship. It was, it was revealing about our relationship to our surviving daughter, Nessie, who's now, you know, uh, 14, almost 15, um, who was only three and a half going on four at the time. Um, and who, you know, Marina and Nessie walked in on the murder scene and, and um, it, it was as horrific as you can imagine, uh, or worse, but, um, the resiliency, the, the ability to survive and then thrive, um, in the face of that is, uh, you know, I think it's a deeply human thing. I don't think on many levels we were special in any way. Um, I think we did a lot of the things right that we needed to do to get through it. Um, but I always tell people, and I, I, I at this point I've, I think like you have had to talk to a lot of folks who've lost people um, close to them in very traumatic ways. Um, I feel like, you know, we're probably go-to people for that. Right. And um, I tell people it's worse than you would imagine, but you'll, you'll get through it better than you imagine too. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's just, it's, it's innate in us that we, we, uh, 
we we know how to survive and and you go th- you get through it because you have to you get through it because that's what humans do um you know it's uh victor frankel's you know um great book man's search for meaning i had just remarkably read it less than a year before the kids were killed and um just on the recommendation of a friend and and uh you know, he talks a lot about how he survived the concentration camps um and and he talks about you know there's three reasons that people get through it they they survive because they want to achieve something do something and you know like write a book or or finish some project that they have or 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 you know what what not the second reason is because people get through it for the for the love of somebody that they want to see again and that or they're supporting and all of that and then the third reason and it's the highest level reason it's it's because human dignity means that you suffer with with dignity and grace that you get through it because that's what it is to be human um and i thought a lot about that in those days i mean you know for for me like it was the the kids were killed in on an evening on thursday october 25th and i was literally like my flight from california was landing like an hour after they were murdered and um and and you know and i met marina and nessie in the hospital uh and saw lulu and leo like you know sort of um to say goodbye to them uh you know cold on a table and and you know and then we were whisked um away by the nypd who did a you know for us did a remarkable job um i'm i'm you know i'm aware that they're not always perfect in a lot a lot of ways Mm -hmm. but for us they treated us incredibly well um and they took us to a uh a a hotel that had a very secure lobby because the press were all over um us and, and our family members and it was really a horrible feeling to think um that you know already this was a global sort of news story it was that was that just added so much pain to the overall situation and yet people protected us and took us in and and really tried to um support us in a lot of ways but but at the you know after all the dust was settled there we are marina and nessie and i in a hotel room you know after our world had literally been just blown to pieces Mm -hmm. um and the kids were murdered in our apartment. You can't go back there. Mm-hmm. It's a crime scene. And you don't want to go back there. It's radioactive, you know, emotionally. And so, you know, then it kicks in that you want to take care of them. Uh, that's that's how I did it, at least, is I, I wanted to make sure that they got some food because they hadn't probably eaten in half a day. And then you start to realize, oh, shit. <laughs> like, we got to go to sleep and wake up the next morning. And, you know, it's so interesting because there's that old adage, right? Like the sun will rise, like the the world will keep spinning and it'll all feel better in the morning. And, and it didn't that first morning, it felt worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause you wake up and you're like, fuck, this is not a dream. This is, this actually happened. Nightmare. It's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, You thought like this was, this, this, and that, that feeling, I'm sure you can relate to this, like that feeling of like, is this really like you, you'd stop and just say like, is this really happening or am I having some hallucination? And is this just some really bad 
really vivid nightmare. I mean, I'm a pretty rational, logical person. And those first few days, the phone would ring and I literally would think it's Adrian on the phone. Right. And then I'd have to stop myself and say, it's not Adrian, she's dead. But right. I mean, I couldn't believe that my mind even went there, but it was that, that way for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then, you know, Nessie, who was sleeping between us in this hotel king bed, king size bed, she turns and says, Dada, I'm, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was like sort of that moment where sort of I realized, you know what, like there will be time to go through all the mm-hmm. the sort of, all of this, but, you know, I, I first and foremost have to make sure, like, I get Nessie some food. And, yeah, it's easy as calling, you know, room service. But, but like, even that act seemed like a sort of a big achievement when, mm-hmm. you know, you're literally in that fog. Um, and, you know, and then, yeah, it was, it was, okay, what, let, let me write, and, and this is very much me, like, I, I need to, I need to have a, a list of things to go do. I gotta, I gotta accomplish things or else I feel like, you know, I just all sink is the, you know, I think is the feeling. And, and that's, I think good for me in a lot of ways, but um, in this case, it was the only way I knew how to, 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 to respond. And, and yeah, it was, I, I think for me, I, I knew enough to think like, we're going to need therapists for sure. And so you know, I had a phone blowing up with text messages and I kind of quickly found one of my college roommates who was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. And I said, like, hey, just can you work your network to find like who are the best traumatic, like trauma psychiatrists psychiatrist you can find and like get me their numbers. And, you know, and and remarkably, like uh, we found this fantastic um, person, uh, Dr. Tony Charavastra, um, who's at NYU, um, he's a specializes in childhood trauma, uh, and psychiatry about how to treat kids who've come out of war zones and, and, and other traumas. And I was able to talk to him like in the first, I got, yeah, I gotta go back and actually do the timeline, but I, I think it was in the first 24 or 36 hours mm-hmm. or so. And he said, listen, there's, uniqueness to every situation but here's some of the the sort of uh things we've learned over time that you should do with nessie Mm -hmm. to to give her something um solid to hold on to and i like wrote those down i felt such a relief that somebody was just giving me a framework Mm -hmm. when when the world feels like utterly upside down shattered in a million pieces to have to have some framework meant, meant everything to me and it was very different from Marina, you know, and, you know, I'm always reluctant to like speak on her behalf, right? Because she, she, she's had a really powerful way of doing this herself, but, you know, she, she approached it very differently. And I think that's true of most people is that you're going to have a very different style. Mm-hmm. You got to understand your own style of how to handle grief and trauma and, and, and your response to it. Um, and, and she leaned into her way of, of it, which was more spiritual, I'd say than me, which was more, I was more cerebral. She was more spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we, and this, you know, just to bring it home, I mean, what we did after a long time kind of realize it took us a couple of years afterwards to figure this out. The commonality is, was, was 
was creativity. Like we were using our creativity to find our way through this um, and to rebuild. And, and, and so that, that's what is the sort of heart of our the nonprofit that we had founded. And we had found, originally founded it like a week or so after the kids were mm -hmm. killed because people just started giving to like a GoFundMe. Right. And I'm like, we don't need, <laughs> like we're, you know, we're, we're not like independently wealthy, but we're like fortunate. I had a good job and that the people I was working for at the time, NBC Universal and Comcast, they took great care of us. They said, just take as much time as you need. You know, they just wrapped their arms around us and, and, uh, I was very grateful for that. So it's not, we didn't need the money and, and we, you know, we knew that we wanted to honor Lulu and Leo's legacy and, and, and yet we had no clue what to do. Right. And it took us, you know, a while, but we realized that their legacy and, and the gift that they gave to us was, you know, realizing that like our creativity was so core to our our resilience and our ability to eventually rebuild that we we wanted to try to like share that with the rest of the world and and it's hard by the way to like put those those ideas into into something concrete but that's what we've we've tried to do with the Lulu Leo fund and our flagship initiative which we call choose creativity you mentioned like you don't feel special and that's an interesting conversation because Maybe it's not special, but I always felt that I was lucky. Lucky in the sense that I had tools. And one of those tools was strength in that incredibly dark moment. And you and I are very similar. We're business guys. It was an yeah. efficiency process that we approach life with. You right. know, it's like make a right. list, do this, do that. You know, our kids were basically around the same age. Like Sophie was not quite three um, when Adrian died. Yeah. And I remember going home from the police station that night. I knew in that second what the rest of my life was going to be about, you know? I had to take yeah. care of that kid. So when you say Nessie was hungry, I think guys like you and I are lucky that we were able to see beyond ourselves. And maybe we're lucky because we had kids and that forced us not to go into a rabbit hole and lock ourselves in a room with a bottle of Jack Daniels for six months. A hundred percent. I mean, I, the, the, you know, gratitude is, I think a lot of people talk about this, so this is not a unique insight, but I mean, I think gratitude is really important. Um, and, and that, that sense of like, it could always have been worse, right? I mean, I could have lost Marina and Nessie too in that same crime. I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, they, the nanny could ambush them as they were walking into the dark apartment and instead she had put a knife into her own throat. Um, but like, you know, one little, one little twist or turn in that and like, I would have been all alone and that would be a very different. Right. very different situation yeah and i you know who knows I, I mean i you know my ego likes to believe would like to believe that i would have like been able to cope with that but i don't i don't know I, i'm i'm not sure of that mm -hmm. and and i think gratitude like you know it it is important to have even if you're not going through traumatic loss right because i i do think like a lot of us are very fortunate to like to be able to make this podcast and listen to this podcast means we're pretty fortunate mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of like the history of this planet and human civilization. Like we're very fortunate. Mm -hmm. And so starting from that point is like, is a good grounding of, of it all. And, you know, like I had to just, I had to hit the books in a big way for, that's the other like part of me that, 
Um, it's just like my way of coping with stuff is if I'm like, if I feel unsettled or con confused or, or just like not, you know, ready for something, I, I hit the books and, and it was really an interesting process of discovery there. But like I was somebody and I, I, I wish I could figure out where I found it because I owe this person, whoever got me to, um, the writing of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who, if you haven't read him is my like just to me the ultimate and they gave me no death no fear that he had written mm -hmm. and that book like literally you know changed my life and i think it's done that for a lot of folks and so i always recommend it um you know he tells this like just very simple like thought exercise he talks about where if you're an astronaut and you go to the moon and you suddenly discover that like your your return craft is irretrievably broken like what's the one thing you'd wish like you would just want to be back on earth with two feet on the ground you wouldn't wish that you had a bigger house or a nicer car or a better marriage or anything you just would want to be back on earth mm -hmm. and it's like that thought exercise is really also very like, literally grounding and figuratively grounding you know it's just let's like stay centered on you know how grateful we should just be to like be alive right now and and uh capable of taking that next step mm -hmm. right i mean those things are just i think really really useful mm -hmm. uh ideas um back in back in the in the day when this happened and in the weeks and months after did you go through a period because i know i did where you'd walk down the streets and you'd see families and their kids and and just say why me why, why uh, do I get to live this way and not that way? A hundred, 110%. And I mean, I, I think it's, it's, um, it was super helpful just to realize how, how common some of these things are and, you know, and, and, um, it's not dissimilar to what a lot of people go through, who've gone through tra traumatic experiences, how they feel alienated from the average other person or other people around them, right? Like you start to realize, wow, like I've gone through something that most of these people haven't yet. And the yet part is I think helpful too, <laughs> where it's like most people will eventually. And, and that at least makes you feel a little less lonely and a little less alienated from the rest of you know, society. In particular, yeah, there were these moments of feeling sorry for ourselves where we were pretty quick to jump on that. Um, that was something where Marie and I were very aligned and very like in the same cycle of our responses where when we started feeling sorry for ourselves, we would like call ourselves, call each other out on it and, and, and really respond well. But the other one was the angrier kind of version of that where it was resent, a, a resentful feeling, you know, and I'd say we lost some friends over that, um, where some people would just like. Like we hadn't seen them since the kids died. And like, I don't know what was going on in their heads. Like it might've been their just their own uncomfortableness with it all, but like they'd be complaining about how like they didn't get the room they wanted on vacation at the fucking four seasons in Maui or whatever. And you're like, are are we really, is that, are, is that the conversation really? You know, and that, and I'm <laughs> well, not that, exaggerating. That's a problem. That's right. a problem. Yeah, and and it was like a couple of those people, like in particular, this happened to Marina, where she's just like, I can't be around them anymore. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like I just can't. And, and I didn't push back on that. I just like, yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, cause that, that, that was, that was, it is startling. When it I happens. remember like, yeah, I, I remember this one vivid memory. I mean, it was really tough to just like go out for a while. Right. And, and there was all those, there's lots of awkward moments and bad moments, but we we were well past. It was probably a year or two after the kids were killed. Um, probably a year, but before Felix, our our fourth kid. So we had a son almost a year to the day. It was like a couple of weeks before the first anniversary of the kids' deaths. Um, we had another child who's named Felix, and and he's lovely and 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 just a a joy but it was probably a little before that where you know there was this paranoia where like are we gonna is the universe gonna like let us have another moment of happiness like or is and marina would have these like paranoia moments where he must be like there must be something wrong with my pregnancy like it can't be going right you know Mm -hmm. which is like it's just so understandable and awful at the same time but anyway i was on a subway i think no, I think I was on a subway, um, going through Brooklyn for whatever reason. And like, we were at the Barclays center stop and like, there's this guy, I won't name him, but he's like, he's a TV, you know, commentator in the finance world. And he gets on looking tanned and happy and fucking healthy as can be. And he's with his like two adult sons or like teenage sons. And they've clearly just come from some concert or some sporting event at Barclays and they're just happy as, you know, pigs and shit. And I'm like, fuck you, you know, is what I'm thinking you in and your head. happiness. Yeah. You, like what, what the fuck? Like, you, you know, you've made a bunch of money in banking and now you're on TV all the time. And you know, like, like I just was so resentful in that moment. And I had to go talk about that with my therapist mm-hmm. for a while. I remember. You know, well, it's very natural um, because I, yeah. I remember walking down the streets and seeing happy people and being angry, like, why are they happy when I'm going through this? Like, how could the world be moving on and my world yeah. is just upside down? You know, it's just natural to get resentful and angry. Yeah. There's uh it makes me think of, and I, I, you know, I should know the name, the names involved, but there's a, there's a really good poem. Again, I don't remember who wrote it or what it's called. But uh, it talks about how the Dutch masters, the painters always got it right, that it like, you know, Icarus is falling into the sea and there's a shepherd and, you know, uh, just tending his flock and another person's carrying their milk to the market and life goes on. Mm-hmm. And like the world doesn't, doesn't care about the bigger little tragedies mm-hmm. that like are constantly happening around us. So life does and, go yeah. on. So when I ask you about closure. Yeah. Do you believe Oof. in closure? Do you have closure? Do you think that's a ridiculous concept? Can you ever get closure? Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think it's. I think it's largely a ridiculous concept. Um, but but but, a uh, couple things. I always talk about with people who've gone through something like this, and they're they're like you know it's usually I'm talking to them in like the days or weeks after their trauma and. And their traumatic loss. And, and I say, like, I give Dr. Tony uh, credit for this. He, he gave me the analogy really early on in our therapy sessions. He said, your, your world's like this, 
the snow globe. And right now your grief, your, your loss is like a rock that is almost the same size as the glass enclosing your snow globe. Like there's almost no room for anything else. Like you're feeling like you can hardly move because your grief is that big. The only way around it is not to shrink the grief and the loss. It's to live and grow. And in growing and living, you're growing your snow globe. Mm -hmm. And that grief over time, that loss doesn't dominate like it used to. Mm -hmm. There's room for other stuff in your world other than that giant rock of grief. And eventually I think, you know, that, 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 that rock doesn't go away ever, but it, it does become like a much smaller piece of the whole world that you're inhabiting. And, you know, I wake up every morning and I like, I'm going to think about Lou and Leo guaranteed. And like, you know, the, the first hours of right. that day, how could you not? Yeah. But, but you know, that horrible sense of like aching, just absence and void or that sense of anger, like, they're there still, but they're not as dominant. They're not as powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, and it shifts like, you know, you, you get worried about forgetting them. You get worried about like the details, you know, the sound of their voice or the feel of their hugs and all those mm -hmm. kind of things that are like, am I, am I starting to lose the grip on what those were really like? That's how it evolves for me. But yeah, I mean, you know, so I think on that level, there's no closure. It's just growth. Um, but you and I both have the criminal justice system to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. Where uh, that that did matter to me, and I was very I was very aware of how it was not in my control, right? It wasn't in your control either what happened. Mm -hmm. But I think you and I both probably felt like we couldn't just sit there and be passive, right? That's just not who no. we are. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a very tricky thing to navigate because it's not spiritual. It's not, you know, it's just this very real, very awful thing. Um, and it took ages for us to get through it. I mean, it, it was, I think it was, uh, almost six years until it got fully like through the trial. Um, it was a little, just shy of six years. Wow. for us after their death, after the murders to, to, to get to mm -hmm. a trial and that resolution. Um, I mean, that's how long it was just hanging there over us. And it would be like six months at a time where there'd be absolutely nothing happening. Right. But you'd still know that this, this specter was looming. Um, and that, that was, that was very rough. Um, in the end, she, the, 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 the woman who murdered our children, she was convicted of life in prison without a chance of parole, which to me was the ideal outcome, um, you know, of a horrible situation. I mean, I had always said, like, I don't know what I'll do if that woman's given a chance at freedom again, right? I mean, that would be hard for me to, like, uh, hard for me to be able to, like, accept, you know, like, to be able to, like, I always said to the prosecutors, like I said, like, my goal in this is to be able to tell Nessie that that woman's never going to be able to get out of jail. Mm -hmm. I don't want everyone to have like a parole hearing. I don't want to have 
like the chance that she's out and then I have to explain that to Nessie. I don't care what age Nessie is. It's like, I'm not having that conversation with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I re- like I had really good friends who were giving us really good advice through that whole thing. And several of them were like former prosecutors in New York City who are like, you know, we can't predict what's going to happen. Like, you don't right. know. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that was, I, I, I'm, I'm very clear in my own head that like if that process had gone another way, I would be feeling very differently than I feel right now. Yeah, well, that's how it went for us. I mean, our I know. Our, our killer is he's going to be out in nine years or something like that. And uh, I remember when Sophie was younger, she would literally say to me, "When he gets out of prison, is he going to come kill us?" Yeah. And like you're standing on a street corner trying to explain the judici- judicial system to a seven year old. Um, you you've said to me that you recently reconciled the merging of your personal journey with your business and professional one. It took you a decade or more to get to that point. What was that process? Yeah, I mean, I would say Marina and I were both pretty private people, um, just as a default setting, so to speak, introverts, I'd say. Um, I can talk, but people don't realize that I'm very introverted. Like I just get drained by those big social moments um, and need my quiet alone time. And and I think Marina is very similar. And, and so the shock of being splashed across the cover of the New York Post and on TV news and all that, I was... That was so painful for us that we really, really, really wanted to like be very, very private. At the same time, we realized, and this was, I don't really understand where this came from either, but we realized that the only way to combat that terrible news cycle was to use social media to to kind of control our narrative. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, that was, Within months, we realized that, like, if we just didn't talk to the press ever, but we wrote a post here and there on carefully worded post on Facebook or or whatever, then that was all the press could go off of. Like, that was all they would be able to use of us. And and um and so we we followed that strategy. But for me, like, I, I had my my whole like self image was like blown up. Uh, mm. over losing two kids like what what am i as a person if i can't protect my kids and i couldn't i didn't mm. right and so like that need for like a safe place to like rebuild you know we found that in our home life by moving from the upper west side down to tribeca after you know questioning whether we'd ever be back in new york ever but we realized we should come back to new york and like own it again um, which was, a, by the way, a very good decision, um, though it was not, a, not an obvious one at, at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like, the other safe place was going to be work. Like, I could go to the office and, like, everyone had been very good and supportive to us, but, like, I could then kind of achieve something that wasn't, you know, about my 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 the family that had been blown up and and we were going to try to rebuild and so i really was like i i just had it in my head and i don't i don't think it was the right decision but it, 
but it took me, like you said, almost 10 years to figure this out. I just wanted those things to be separate as much as I could. And the tension that I felt early on was, was our nonprofit, was the, the charitable impact we wanted to have through Choose Creativity and the Lululeo Fund. And so, you know, I'm, I'm working for CNBC at the time and, you know, Jim Cramer, the famous, you know, uh, 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 you know, guy at CNBC, he's, he's like, well, I'll, I'll help you guys raise money. And, and I'm like, how do I say no to that? You know? And so, and it was a lovely thing that he was willing to do for us. And, and there were others like that. And so I was kind of feeling like I was on this balance beam for a long time, mm-hmm. trying to keep these worlds separate. Um, and, and our nonprofit was this place where they were sometimes touching and then they'd come apart and, and, uh, and then I left CNBC a couple of years later to start a company, um, that I'm still at now, eight and a half years in. And, uh, it, it was that moment where I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I can do this on my own. Like no one's feeling sorry for me. No one's doing this because they, they, they want to help me out. Like I'm going to achieve something, which again, I think was the wrong impulse, but it was what was going through my head at the time. And I just realized it was kind of exhausting um, over time to try to have two, two hats on all the time or two faces to the world. And, and, um, it was, it was interesting. I just got inspired by seeing some people, uh, writing more on LinkedIn about their personal lives. And some of that, that has gone the wrong way, (laughs) you know, but I think in the, yeah, TMI very much, but in done in the right way, I realized, wow, I can, I can be a more whole person to my colleagues who matter a lot to me. I can be a more whole person um, for my, for my nonprofit where I'm the chairman and I'm the chief fundraiser, you know, like a lot of these people that I know on, you know, through my professional life, I think would, would be happy to give if I were, you know, showing that side of what I do all the time instead of trying to keep them separate. And, and I realized too, that like, the writing and the sharing is good for me. Like it's cathartic. And, and why would I like only put that on like, you know, on Facebook and not on LinkedIn and, you know, and, and, and so, yeah, I just got, I kind of got to this point. Um, it was just two weeks ago or three weeks ago where it was the anniversary, the 11th anniversary of the kids deaths. And we honored it like we always do by going up to storm King art center and, I always try to write something to our friends and family, like reflecting on that moment. And, you know, I was like, I like what I wrote. I'm going to, I'm going to put this on LinkedIn too. On, you know, no, no edits, just exactly what I post to friends on LinkedIn. I mean, on Facebook, I'm going to put it on LinkedIn too. And the response was fantastic. Like, you know, everyone was so supportive and, and, and not only supportive, but like appreciative that I was sharing this anecdote of you know in the weeks or the months after we lost the kids like how did we achieve this like one thing of just trying to like go from LA where we were staying with family to go back to New York and I told a little story about crossing over into the Mississippi River into Memphis and thinking to myself the lyrics to Paul Simon's Graceland and and then this moment of grace that I 
had while I was walking our dog around this hotel we stayed in. And this guy came up to me like asking for money and, and he saw me like crying, you know, and I, and he hugged me and like said, it's going to be all right. Like whatever, whatever it is, it's going to be all right. And I was like, you know, I still remember that vividly to this day. And so I shared that, I, that little story and like, you know, and, and, you know, that it helps for people who are, you know, people, right. It doesn't matter how you know them. People are people. And like, we should be our whole, I just, I just, I regret that I wasn't my whole self to like well, it's a process. all these folks I was interacting with. It yeah. took you time, but, but I think what you just said is really the key. And that's what I was going to comment on is that, you know, it's understandable to try to escape it because it's horrible. I mean, who wants to think about that shit and talk about it? But then you get to a point where you realize like, you're not the old Kevin anymore, right? I'm not the old Andy. Like my life yep. took a, you know, it's like, uh, um, you know, the year of magical thinking, right? Didion's book. I read that right after Adrian died. It's like Love that life, book. Yeah, life changed changed in an instant. And and <clears throat> and I and I think, and it sounds like you have as well, that in order to really move forward healthily, you, you have to change with it. It's like, okay, this is now a truth of mine. This is my life. What do I do with it to to put some good out into the world? So on that note, tell us about Lulu and Leo Fund and choose creativity, what it's all about and, and what the mission is there. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it was very organic. Choose Creativity came directly from Marina and I trying to answer the question that people were asking us. And they asked it in the nicest way. I mean, they meant it like literally, how are you guys doing this? Like, how are you getting through it? Because you seem to be doing all right. Like, what what is the secret to that? And, you know, we didn't have an answer for a while. And and Marina, she was a kindergarten teacher when we first met and was teaching up until we started having kids. And she got her master's in, in education with sort of a minor in arts. And so for us, we started trying to explain it to people and trying to answer the question just to ourselves. And we were clear that it was our creativity. But, but then the question was, how do you really share that? Like, you know... We don't mean creativity in a sense of like we're we're good artists. What we meant is like it's a mindset. You know, it's a it's an approach to life. It's an approach to anything. And then Marina, like, she just wanted to turn it into a curriculum. That's like how she could relate to it. And we we really talked about what are those things that make up creativity? Like, what is it? It's being authentic, part of it's being resourceful. Part of it's being intuitive, part of it's being inventive, right? And and we came up with these 10 principles of creativity that really to us answer that question of like, how did we use creativity to get through what we were getting through and then eventually thrive again? Mm. And then I, I, I hit the books and I looked at like, what is the underpinnings of this in psychology? And I came upon this idea of self-efficacy. That was a phrase or a word coined by this professor at Stanford, Albert Bandura, who's I think pretty famous in this, this field. And he basically said, there is this thing that is innate in human psychology that is the ability to affect change on the world around oneself. And then he tried to like develop tests that would measure it and then see like for people who score higher on self-efficacy, like 
were they were they actually having different outcomes in life? And he found that people who have high self-efficacy, they do better in school, they have healthier relationships, they tend to do better financially, and most importantly, they're able to withstand and thrive through change and even trauma. And that was like click, you know, for me, like getting to that research really kind of locked it all together and 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 gave us a real focus for our nonprofit. And we what we do now is um, we partner with schools or whole school districts. Um, and individual teachers can do this too, but we we like to focus on the whole school because what we're offering is a overlay curriculum that is about the wellness of the teachers and the students in the school. It's about the, the overall health of the whole community around the school by building these 10 pillars, these like scaffolding pillars uh, that that support creativity. And the lesson plans are integrated into the rest of the curriculum. So, you, you know, it's not like there's this hour once a week where you do creativity. Instead, we, we train the teachers. We do these prof professional development sessions with the staff at the schools. And what we're showing them is how you can build these 10 principles of creativity into your whole day. So when you're doing a math lesson, talk to the kids about how they can be unconventional in solving this math problem. How can they be resourceful in analyzing this nonfiction literature that they're going through? How can they apply this to their social studies, right? So we do that and we ask the schools to pay whatever they can out of their professional development budgets. And then we cover the rest through our donors support. And we have a very thin, small staff. It's only two and a half full-time people but we, we've achieved a ton. We've trained about 1,600 teachers and uh, 22,000 kids have been served through it. The big thing that we broke through with the New York City Department of Education, as you can imagine, has a few processes you have to go through to- A few layers of bureaucracy. A few layers. Right? Yeah, I didn't want to use that label, but you know, there's a mm -hmm. few layers. And we were able to build a relationship with the, um, there's a whole office of attendance in the DOE here in New York City. And it turns out there's a massive crisis of chronic absenteeism in a number of schools. New York City is divided up into all these districts and District 4 in East Harlem is the pilot of our rollout with the Office of Attendance where we're training a bunch of the schools that are suffering from chronic absenteeism. And the numbers are start startling. In District 4, 45% of students were chronically absent in the past couple of years. Our hypothesis, and we're collecting data on it as we do this pilot, is that we're, by showing how creativity can help the teachers and the students to feel more effective in their entire day and their entire lives, how to be more resilient and, and to be more empowered learners and teachers, we think that's going to improve attendance. And so we're, we're rolling that out to other districts within New York City. And we also have had just very organic adoption around the country and even the world. We have a Department of Defense Elementary School in Japan that serves our service members, children. Um, a teacher there adopted it and has been using it for years now. So they find uh, you, they just find you. They find us on the internet. Yeah, through word of mouth. Uh, there's a, a school on the Navajo Nation's lands in New Mexico that is using us. There's schools in New Zealand, in Wales, uh, and all over this country that are using us. So it's it's been just a beautiful thing. Um, 
Marina works her ass off on it every day. I, I um, spend a lot of time on the strategy and the fundraising and it's incredibly gratifying to see it when a teacher tells us it's the best training she's ever had or a parent says, my kid has an entire new vocabulary about why they can solve problems. Like that's the feedback that it's you so, live for. It's and so, It's so bittersweet because you see the impact of what you've done and the reach that you have and the level of of people and children that you're helping, but then it's impossible not to think and go, it's only because of one reason, right? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it, and it's Lulu's just, in, Lulu and Leo's incredible legacy that, mm-hmm. you know, they did this. Um, the inspiration's entirely from them. Um, Marina and I would not have done it without them, and and, you know, there's so many people who've been inspired by what they what they did in their very short lives and and the legacy they've had since is is huge and and you know, I think that's all we can really do, right? Mm-hmm. It's well, it's a lot. It's, you've you've done it's, a lot. It's like yeah, and you don't have to do what we did. I don't mean that, but I mean what each of us who've lost someone can do is really just be inspired by by their memory, by like what they represented in life. Mm-hmm. Like we can be inspired by that. Um, we're going to each manifest that very differently, I think. Right. But like, that is the, I think that's the only way to, to, to kind of remember them, uh, you know, uh, through your grief and turn that into something that's, that, that, that's worth living for. Mm-hmm. And if people want to support this, what's the URLs for, uh, it's choosecreativity.org, and uh, there's a, a great website there and, and you can give in a bunch of different ways. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, yeah, check it out. If you've, I'd say if you're listening to this and you think this could be applicable to your school or to your uh, district, by all means, reach out to us. That's our fundamental like thing is we need to convince the people who run these schools and districts that this is a good program for them to adopt. Well, it is a beautiful thing and, and uh, it is it is something that does contribute to a legacy that is very important. Let's shift to your professional career. You are the president yeah. and CEO of EDO. Tell us, uh, give us the elevator pitch on EDO. Yeah, we uh, founded it eight and a half years ago. Edward Norton, the filmmaker, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. He's our co-founder and executive chairman of our company. He and I and our other co-founder, Daniel Nadler, who's a data scientist. We came together just over like this shared frustration in how media and entertainment were being held back by old ways of thinking about the business models. We saw, Edward saw from his work on films that, you know, the inefficiencies of marketing and distribution of films had a direct impact, not only on the compensation of the creators, the filmmakers and the actors and everybody else involved, but it also just changed what was being made, right? If you had to spend a hundred million to get this movie out, you don't make small pieces of art anymore, right? You only make things with pre-existing IP and, and you get to a reductive place on creativity. And so that was the big motivation. For me, I had spent the first half of my career as an advertising product manager, building some of the earliest search advertising and social advertising products at, at places that are like way back names, like Look Smart and Life Journal, and then at Yahoo. And then I had moved 14 and a half years ago, almost 15 now. Marina and I had moved to New York to take a job at Bloomberg 
uh, to build out their digital media business as, as that company was getting really serious about, um, a consumer media, uh, part of its, uh, of its work. And, and then I did the same kind of thing at CNBC and I was struck by how crazy it was that TV advertising, which powers so much of the entertainment that we consume was, was based on a 1950s idea of just counting how many people are watching and that's it. And, and so that has a huge influence over what gets made. And it has a huge influence over stuff that you and I care about, like cable news. And, you know, somebody starts to realize that if you hack the system, you can create Fox News into a very profitable business. And yet, what is it doing for, our, you know, our civic, you know, experiment? Like, it, it, it's it's quite concerning. And so um, EDO, it tries to change how we think about marketing on television and and beyond television now that it, it's a streaming world where these these definitions are collapsing what we do is we we think about you know basically the way marketers on digital advertising have done for many years you you think about not who's seeing it as much as you see you you want to care about what happens after somebody sees an ad what do they do do they search for your brand or product do they go to your website or your app do they eventually buy something and that that kind of measurement again has been done forever in 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 digital advertising and and EDO had to bring it for the first time to TV and so he had to build a huge crazy system of automatically seeing all the ads across TV um, with robots and then you you look at big patterns of data like who's searching for what on Google and you find these these changes in those patterns that are attributable to the advertising that they saw and and that's uh. That's what we do. And now we're, we're the way people at Netflix ads measures the, the impact of the advertising they're selling. Uh, it's only Nielsen and EDO that work with Netflix ads. Uh, Amazon Thursday Night Football. Mm-hmm. We measure everything on Hulu, on Disney Plus as they're rolling out advertising. That's all measured by EDO. And we do all the traditional um, television as well. Broadcast. Uh, all the, yeah, all the broadcast mm-hmm. stuff. Including, interestingly, we work for uh, MSNBC and Fox News and CNN. Uh, all of those folks are clients, and it's you know that's a, I'm that's sure, a strange, I'm, I'm sure the strange stats, evolution. Stats are all the same, you know, from MSNBC to Fox, right? <laughs> I mean, the behavior you know, patterns. The you know they are very different. Con- there's very different content, but you know of a genre, and uh, you know it, it delivers for each. Each delivers for their advertising clients in their own unique way. So what trends uh, do you see? What it, what in, in terms of advertising uh, on oh linear, linear, linear TV versus uh, I mean, listen, streamers? I think there, there, a lot of it is in the granular sort of details and it, it varies very much down to the creative. Each ad very much drives its own impact um, and, and creativity is still at the core of it. Um, but I'll say there are a couple of interesting patterns um, great programming, just great TV, whether we're talking about a, a drama like this is us when that was on air, mm-hmm. that was in the, it was, it was some of the most engaging programming for the ads. So what we learned is what we've learned over time is that when people love what they're watching, they're also paying more attention and are more engaged with the ad breaks too. Hmm. So uh, great programming, whether it's drama 
or news or sports um, will do great things for the ads that are in those programs. And are the ads so, targeted more specifically to a specific show like that that is successful and popular versus more generic type of advertising? Yeah, I, I, the best creatives will be very sensitive to the context that they're appearing in. Mm -hmm. So the best creative ads um, are going to have some tonal or other kind of, you know, contextual relevance to the program in the period. Um, but ultimately everyone's trying to target a person, you know, at the end of the day, they're thinking about who's my idealized customer. What am I pitching to them? What is the, you know, what is the offer there, right? Like what is that emotional and logical sort of appeal I'm making? Right. And you, you and I both come from that, that world, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you, we know what we're all trying to do. And then you're trying to imagine, or you're trying to use the data to see where are they? Where are those people and what are they engaging the most in? And that um, is working. I, I'll tell you, like, the reason traditional television and streaming is paying more for live events is because that is the stuff that attracts the most people and engages them the best with the advertising. Mm -hmm. It is a very logical relationship where, the, you know, live sports score the best in terms of um, the value for the advertisers. That's why it also costs the most for the advertisers. It's why these broadcasters pay so much to these leagues. And does it vary the between the, the sports? Like is, I mean, I would imagine football is probably right up there, but like. Uh, Americans, is, is, Americans love the NFL and love right. college football. Uh, the NBA has done incredibly well and is, and is continuing to grow in our data. Um, NFL is definitely the king of the hill. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, uh, women's sports are doing better and better as, as women's sports are given the equal footing in terms of their time slots on television, that they're on the biggest networks with the most, um, uh, sort of availability women's sports, especially the WNBA, um, uh, women's soccer, like the women's world cup this past summer those kind of sports, uh, women's uh, NCAA basketball tournament, those are being given real equality in terms of the quality of their broadcasts. Mm -hmm. And the advertising performance is starting to match that of the male uh, equivalent sports. And, and that's really exciting because, again, there's this relationship where the, the value of the advertising will help more of that programming be seen by people because that relationship is very direct. Um, uh, it's it's a very rational relationship of what we can prove uh, is effective for advertisers is going to increase what gets funded um, for not just sports but for creative you know for creative entertainment for for news and so I think that is the really positive trends that we're seeing is that good quality programming can be paid for through advertising and and you know cable or streaming there's also a subscription element to it. Um, that is important. That dual revenue stream for for uh, the entertainment industry is uh, is alive and thriving. There was a there was a thought back in sort of this early era of streaming that it could be subscription only. Um, Netflix was going to destroy the world of advertising, and it was obviously very exciting to see Netflix realize that you know what we can serve more people. Mm -hmm and make them happier. And, and we as a business can make more money if we offer cheaper subscription tiers that include advertising. And then we can raise the prices on the top tiers of our plans that don't have advertising. 
and everybody wins because some people are more price sensitive, some people are less, right? And you can pay for great programming, great great content by having advertising and subscription. And and so I think it's actually a really healthy place that the entertainment and media industries are are getting to, much more balanced um, than we were in a certain sort of gold rush type, mm -hmm. you know, era that we were just were just coming out of, where it was like we were probably overfunding content on the margin and we were thinking that it was going to be paid for in a less resilient business model only through subscription. And that's just not, that's not going to be the sustainable path. Like we need to find that equilibrium of dual revenue stream and, you know, a healthy amount of great content being created and, and funded. And, and, and I think we're getting close to that. Well, the industry is in that. such a state of flux. I mean, broadcast TV is what it is. It's been on a steady decline over the years, just in terms of yeah. like appeal and content. Uh, and then you have the c cable and streamers and you look at Netflix, you look at an HBO, you look at the companies that were traditionally the, the leaders that are, that have been going through, you know, shakeouts and mergers over the last few years. Netflix is obviously a category killer HBO as well. Where do you see like the, the, the immediate future and then just a little bit longer term, where, where, where are things headed with how people watch and view and experience content? Yeah, I mean, we're we're in a, we've just kind of seen a couple watershed moments. Um, there was two really big moments for um, the engine of television economics, which is live sports on TV. Uh, uh, you saw Amazon get the rights for Thursday Night Football mm -hmm. and pay a lot for that. Um, that started last season, so a year ago, and 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 they're doing well with it, which is not a, a sure sure bet. Um, and then you saw Google and YouTube um, acquire the rights for the, the Sunday ticket where if you're watching, you can watch any NFL game no matter where you live and all that. Um, and again, that's expensive. Um, those two things moving from traditional satellite and cable to to pure streamers as uh, and to tech companies, really, that are not media companies at heart, um, that's a watershed moment. Um, then the, the, the carriage disputes... Uh, most notably the the Disney charter dispute um, that not, it was not a coincidence that that fight came to a head, right? As football season was starting. Oh, right. Um, sure. And, and everybody cut everybody who cares about football, which is a lot of Americans. They, they canceled their charter subscriptions and switched to YouTube TV or Fubo or one of these, what are called virtual, you know, uh, uh, TV providers. Didn't it end like the, the day of the, like the first Monday night game. Yeah, I mean, it. It, it mm. college football had started, and NFL was about to start, and that's when they right. they 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 settled it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but 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 from a consumer perspective and an overall industry perspective, the damage was done, and the the sort of like finger that was in the dike was out, and like the water is rushing through. Like it, it is fundamentally now a moment where everyone realizes that that old cable business model has got to change in a very dramatic way. We, a lot of us have been thinking about this for over a decade, but you know, it's always hard to know when that, that tipping point happens. And it's now it's like, we literally just lived through it in September. Um, and then these actor, the actor strike and the writer strike, and thankfully they're both now resolved. Um, and, and, you know, but those were all about the changes in the underlying economics of the business and everybody fighting for this, you know, uh, 
newly shaped pie. We're not sure if it's bigger or smaller, but it's certainly a different shape. Everybody wanted their 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 bigger slice of it. And you know, that is that is a that is a key moment for this for the overall industry. And so where is it going? I think you're gonna see we we have already seen the the sort of end of that gold rush era of just create more this fun more more TV and more movies and we'll figure it out later. Like that's over. People are rationalizing like how much new new programming do, do they really need? Um, and then next is, and we're already going through this as we speak, the consolidation of the distribution points, right? Like how you consume it is got a got very fragmented and it's now going to come back together. You know, Warner Brothers and Discovery merging, you know, collapsing all these different apps into sort of a mega app under this idea of Max. Um, uh, whether we like that name or not, that's, you know, mm -hmm. that idea is a, con is a consolidation idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is Paramount going to be a standalone company 12 months or 24 months from now? You know, th those kind of questions are going to keep happening. Um, I think, you know, I think Google's in a very good place where YouTube is, is the 800 pound gorilla and is, is only going to grow from here. And, and I think we, you know, I think we all got to like start to wake up to that idea that the, the old idea of TV is being redefined as in a much more broad way. Um, and of course, like, you know, TikTok, I don't think TikTok in its current format is, is very fun to consume on very large screens. Mm -hmm. Maybe it never will. It doesn't need to be, but, but I think what's powerful about a thing like YouTube is it looks freaking great on your big screen too, mm -hmm. you know, and, and like there's generations now, like probably two generations uh, of media consumers who like think of YouTube as like a starting point. Sure. Well, they, they've, and, a lot of people have got, given up cable and gone to YouTube. Yeah. And you can go to YouTube TV, which is still like, it's cable just with better customer service. Right. But, you know, <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and a little cheaper for sure. But, but then there's like YouTube.com YouTube, mm -hmm. which is this just giant bubbling, you know, pot of, you know, sort of all types of content from professional, like you can watch most of Saturday Night Live on YouTube.com, right? But you can also, it's not the same experience, it's chunked up, but you can still mm -hmm. watch it. Mm -hmm. Or or you can get Mr. Beast, or you can get, you know, a great cooking, you know, channel, or you can get like anything you want on how to fix anything, you know, and all the other stuff, right? It's it's an incredible, it's, it's an incredible redefinition of what TV is. And, you know, I, I think... Um, uh, it's good for creativity. Uh, it could be a good business. Uh, it just depends on how you approach it. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing we know is that it is moving fast and it's going to keep moving fast and keep changing. It's just out of my wheelhouse. I'm still paying yeah. the cable and I'm still, I'm, I'm old school, but this has been a really fascinating conversation on obviously many levels. I really appreciate you sharing your complicated, challenging, yet inspiring life journey with us personally and professionally. Take care. Thanks, Andy. Bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. 
Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Thank you.